Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep history alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett, ICH researcher with Heritage NL. On today's episode, we talk with PhD candidate Anatolis Venasevs about industrial heritage in Newfoundland and Labrador, as well as his work in contemporary archaeology in Russia, Norway, and Canada. Hi, Anatoly, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great, it's great to be here. So just to start off, can you, um, I know you're a PhD candidate. Can you talk to me a little bit about your research and, and what you're looking into? So I'm a PhD uh, in archaeology at uh, UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. And currently I'm a visiting graduate student at Memorial University. So my work is in contemporary archeology, span that is the archeology span of the recent past, probably the last hundred years, give or take. And specifically I'm looking at 20th century single industrial mining towns in Russia, Norway, and Canada, uh, specifically in Labrador City and Wabush. And I'm doing it from an archaeological perspective. I guess what is interesting is that, you know, um, Russia, Norway, and Canada have are very different places with, um, you know, and for the longest time had very different uh, economic institutions. Uh, they were on different sides during the Cold War. So they may literally seem worlds away, which they are in some sense, but they, despite kind of different economical institutions, they often had very similar kind of consequences, building idealized model communities built in northern regions, built around extraction and processing of a single industry. And then through changes through privatization um, or kind of lack of corporate investment, they have transformed to become kind of, well, artifacts or heritage in, in one sense. And so what got you interested in this, I guess, in this field, in this particular project? My background has been in archaeology, but also I have a background in geographical information systems, or GIS. And uh, I did my master's at Memorial, and after that I got a job in Happy Valley Goose Bay in, in Labrador. And what's really, what was, it was actually a, fa a fantastic opportunity and a fantastic place to live. And what, and, but it's, it's also a very recent community, it's only 75 years old. And doing GIS for the municipality, and kind of also looking at a lot of the other stuff around me, but still thinking kind of through a heritage lens, through an archaeology lens, kind of start to realize that what I was looking at was the heritage, the very persistent and heavy heritage of the 20th century that has, at least specifically for Newfoundland and Labrador, has completely transformed the human geography of, of the province, dramatically so, um, studying the specifically um, mine, mining communities in Labrador West is sort of my attempt to kind of understand this type of heritage better. And I know this summer you were in Labrador doing some field work, so can you explain a little bit more about what you were doing when you were there? Yes, so specifically I, I approach kind of communities of Labrador City and Wabush as archaeological sites and the stuff around them. I mean, these are in, were built as model garden city communities in the 1960s and 70s, but that very quickly changed in kind of the, the 80s and the 90s and even you know today where they're riding the resource roller coaster as opposed to being like these best, you know, I mean, they're still very nice places to live. Um, I've been there, I spent my, my summer there even before that, but they have transformed from the vision that they were before. So 
you know, a lot of it did come down to understanding built environment, how it was and how it is now, how it transformed. And it also included kind of going around kind of on the outskirts of town and recording kind of byproducts of industrialization. So the, the, and these included like, you know, registering one of the first, actually the, the best preserved mine uh, kind of map, mineral mapping site just um, north of Labrador City and Wabush. That's from 1958. And it's still very well preserved. And it's the only one that's preserved. So this is the only preserved it's kind of survey camp from the very early days, right when they were getting, uh, well, especially the Labrador City operations off the ground. And this also includes you know, looking at some of the runways along the Quebec North Shore and Labrador Railway. So these are some of the, again, the, one of the first, some of the first settler, industrial settler, industrial co- uh, colonial sites um, in this region. And as well, I had a um, wonderful opportunity to actually do a very extensive uh, week-long survey at Twin Falls, which is an abandoned hydroelectric dam, right smack dab in the middle of Labrador, Labrador West, that supplied power to uh, Lab City and Wabosh and Churchill Falls during its construction. I was just going to say, at the beginning, you kind of mentioned that they've gotten away from what a garden city is. So for anybody who doesn't know, what, what I guess kind of what was the model when they were built and what is a garden city? Well, I mean, if you look at even any of the 1950s, 60s neighborhoods, whenever wherever any of your listeners live, um, they'll kind of get the idea. It's, it's having, a, it's, it's, it's very kind of very like post-war uh, suburban design, but large lawns, lots of, you know, lots of green space and parks and backyards and all of that. And, you know, and, and this was a kind of a way for to have an ideal, uh, I guess, community. Um, and, and now, of course, we're finding limits now because especially, well, anywhere there's, especially millennials like me they we don't buy homes <laughs> um but also you know in in what is so fascinating about labrador west is that this is in the middle of the boreal forest where the temperature gets to minus 40 or sometimes even minus 50 um so and single family homes are very energy inefficient and yet that is kind of this so this is a uh, very you know kind of a Southern Canadian, a Southern, you know, American, I guess, design being transplanted into a place where it's it's very very foreign, and and then seeing uh, all those, you know, the, the the front lawns in that context, you know, it that it, it is very interesting how that uh, that came about. Uh, but also, I mean, same for uh, the stuff that I look at in, in Russia. I mean, the I mean, sure, like a well. Uh, nine-story concrete apartment building looks very different from a single-family home, but those concrete apartment buildings with centralized heating and, and the water and, and fairly large living conditions were very nice places to live, and they were built um, in the northern environments because they wanted to attract you know, the best doctors, the best teachers, the best workers um, to these communities, which sounds familiar regardless of the country you're in. And I guess, can you talk a little bit more broadly about industrial heritage and, and why it's important and, and why you want to research this? And I guess, you know, it's something that, you know, is kind of everywhere. I mean, I know I've visited lots of different sites in, in on the island. Why is it important and why do you think it's kind of overlooked? Yeah, I mean, I'll just look at, I guess, the, I mean, the work that any kind of a lot of the heritage practitioners do um, in the province. And it's really amazing work um, or, you know, or what Heritage Janelle does. I mean, or what is the sort of heritage that is celebrated? And a lot of times it's 
well, the fishery and uh, all of the beautiful outports and communities or um, in Labrador, there's the very rich and dynamic uh, indigenous communities and, and also actually here on, uh, in, in Newfoundland as well. I'm not sure why there's this longing for, you know, and, and kind of this celebration where because when uh, one looks to, well, basically look at the human map of Newfoundland and Labrador. You know, what are the, some of the biggest communities? Gander, Goose Bay, Stephenville, Argentia, Cornerbrook, Grand Falls, Windsor, Labrador City, and Wabash. Um, you know, these are either military towns or industrial towns. Um, a lot of them, you know, either from the Second World War um, or right, right after. Um, and I mean, maybe there is like a nostalgia of learning back to something to I mean, the, the fishery, uh, but then also look at the fishing towns. It's all fish plants <laughs> um, and a lot of also resettled communities, which is also part of the 20th century heritage. What is important, I think, here is to recognize that the recent past, the 20th century, has had a huge impact on the human geography of, of the province, of how we live now, where we live now. And, you know, I, I want our, you know, kind of part of my kind of broader interest is that I, w I want people to acknowledge that <laughs> and that uh, especially heritage practitioners have something to say about us being thrown in into you know, completely different environments. Many of us, our families have, have experienced massive um, demographic, sh demographic shifts and movements. Um, and we live in times either like industrialized or post-industrialized, definitely urbanized places. And oftentimes, you know, we also start forming memories um, and attachments and connections um, to those places to these new places. Um, so it's important in that sense. Um, you know, it, it's also important in kind of a more uh, practical sense, because if, you know, we kind of open up the kind of the idea of heritage as everything um, and everywhere um, that has to do with the humans uh, in the past, regardless of kind of where you draw the line of your first, you know, per personal interest. You know, heritage becomes, you know, the streets we walk on, um, which, you know, in some places can be several hundred years old. In some places they could be um, a few days, well, maybe a couple of years old. Uh, but it's also the houses we live on, the water, in, you know, the water lines and the electrical lines that, sustain our homes and you know when we look at uh, some a lot of the issues that are facing the province today like um agent infrastructure uh that's a heritage problem also these you know these a lot of this infrastructure was overbuilt in the 60s and 70s and and now you know it's getting harder and harder to maintain it uh because of population decline and because it was just way too complex for um, a lot of people to 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 meaningfully sustain. Um, so I think, you know, in that sense, I think that by kind of opening up this definition and, and saying that well, all of this can be studied as heritage, it allows heritage practitioners kind of to have a broader say in the world we live in. Um, you know, 
to, to all, all of the living heritage, even the ones we're living in right now. I love that you brought in, I, I don't know if you know this, but a couple of years back, well, several years back now, we did a project um, about wells and, and water, because that's something that depending on where you live in the province is very important. Or, you know, if you're in somewhere more, you know, urban like St. John's, you probably never think about because the municipality supplies your water. But we did a little video with someone about how to, um, called water witching and how you find water and so it's just, uh, like you said, it's just like another living heritage aspect that if you don't think about it or you don't keep it on your mind, then you might might not realize the importance of it. But it was something that was important to Newfoundlanders, Labradorians historically. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent of kind of broadening our, our heritage aspects because, I mean, not everything is heritage, but there's definitely a little bit of heritage probably in everything, I would say. So I would agree. I, th- I think everything, well... I think there's, yeah, I, th- I think there's a little bit of heritage in everything. Now, I mean, whether or not we go and, you know, def- def- you know defend it under the NL Heritage Act, that's a very separate issue, you know. Um, the, does every landfill need to be protected? Well, probably not, but landfills are very interesting in and of themselves, or, every, you know, all the sewer lines and, you know, everything like that. Um, so it is, you know, um, yeah, it, it, it you know, it's, it's often the things that we overlook, you know, we think that, like, the home we live on, um, it's not, you know, it may, maybe it's not, you know, I mean, sure, it might be an old house, but it, it's often, sometimes we often take it for granted that that is also um, heritage. Um, and, and yeah, and if it's a hundred year old home, it begins to bend and leak and, and, and crack. Um, and then maybe the heritage of the place becomes apparent. Um, but even the, you know, I, but even the more recent ones, it's, it's all how, you know, we, um, you know, the built environment has so much of an impact um, on just how we carry up carry out about our day um, and live our lives and and when you when you think about that you know that 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 built environment has a uh, historical uh, precedent or a cause that is still being felt and still being lived with in the present by you in the present in your own home um, then it's like okay well that kind of puts everything into a much broader context I think and it's like okay well you know, and then well, maybe some things are not working out. So how do we modify our built environments, uh, or infrastructure, you know, stuff like that, um, in kind of in ways that work for us? So, yes. I know that you mentioned uh, by email the the Twin Falls, and you mentioned that it's a really great technology. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the? I guess you mentioned it was nineteen sixties technology. Can you explain a little bit more about about the site itself? Yeah. So Twin Falls is is a gem. I think it's it's one of the one of the biggest gems um, in the province, and, and most people haven't heard of it. So, um, so it's it's yeah. It's like I mentioned, it's the it was the hydroelectric uh, power plant for Labrador City and Wallace, and it supplied power to Churchill Falls for its construction. Uh, but it only operated from 1962 to 72. So it only operated for 10 years, and then it was mothballed, maybe with the idea that it might one day run, you know, concurrently with Churchill Falls. Um, but um, it, it never was. And now, you know, it's not extremely impractical now to, to get it running. Um, but, the, I mean, the power plant itself is still standing, and the technology there is a time capsule of, hydroelectricity in, in 1960s Newfoundland and Labrador um, with kind of my, uh, with sort of machines and instruments from being assembled from many different parts of the world from you know, from Canada, Germany, United States 
Um, so it's a, you know, it, and it's a very interesting uh, time capsule in that sense. Um, it's also very interesting socially because um, it had a diverse, very diverse workforce. Uh, there were over 600 people and 21 families working there. And there was a very large indigenous workforce from Northwest River, Happy Valley, Cartwright, and Hopedale. Um, there's some interesting stuff in the Then Days magazine. Uh, very few stories, but they're very interesting. Um, so, which is actually very different from all of the other developments, which often had a very kind of a Newfoundland and very colonial uh, perspective. This one was a little bit different. Um, but uh, then, yeah, when Churchill Falls came online, Churchill Falls was 15 times bigger than Twin Falls. Um, it, it kind of got abandoned. Um, and they just either, you know, aside from the power plant, which was left intact, uh, everything else got either demolished or burned um, or just carried off on the bulldozer to Churchill Falls. So um, so this past summer, myself and James Williamson, who, who's a PhD uh, candidate at, uh, in archaeology at Memorial, uh, we did a survey specifically with uh, drone work uh, to better map out the remains, you know, the power plant, but also the remains of the settlement. And, you know, we were getting, you know, concrete foundations and some of them still had outlines of where the tiles were and where the walls were. They were the tiles were gone. It just had the soil discoloration in the concrete. Um, you had, you know, small objects like pool tabs, uh, which are datable, um, you know, nuts and bolts and, and pieces of glass on, on some of the, um, on some of the uh, footings. Um, and, and then you could see, you know, it was all just a forest of alders for the most part, but where the roads were, you got a little dip because of the, you know, slightly poorer alder height. So we're getting crop marks, which is a, um, a traditional archeological technique, but instead of looking at it, you know, um, on the, in the fields of like, wheat fields of Europe where the technique originated, we're looking at alders in Labrador. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that was really, really cool to see. Um, yeah, but at the same time, I mean, this is also a very complicated place. Um, it is the, you know, kind of the uh, parent of Churchill Falls and the grandparent of Muskrat Falls. Um, it's on the um, uh, Churchill River or the Grand River, um, uh, network. So, and, and that's been a very controversial topic and still is and will continue to be. Um, uh, and, and then at the same time, it's also a rather polluted place. There's, you know, PCBs in uh, Bonnell Creek, which is just downstream from the dam. There's lead and asbestos. Um, we did excavate a few test units and we came down on some buried asbestos. That was not fun to see. Um, so, and we did take soil samples for uh, later analysis. Uh, so, it's a, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a very complicated place. It's a place of, you know, kind of uh, nostalgia and feel good stories and, and, you know, kind of, and, and you know, and, and then, yeah, and, and this is kind of the first industrial community uh, in Western Labrador. Uh, but then there is this heavy legacy and, and the quick abandonment. I mean, it was literally built in obsolescence, into obsolescence. You know, um, you know the last, you know, Twin Falls always kept expanding during its existence. I mean, it had its last edition in 1968, and four years later, it was shut down. Um, 
so when we talk about, you know, when we, one of the things that, you know, probably people heard in the news is, you know, kind of this rapid obsolescence, why we have to get a new phone every two years or something like that. Um, you know, it's sort of, it, it is sort of like that. Um, though there even, there wasn't even any, maybe not even any planning, it's sort of just um, got cast out on the wayside um, as, uh, as, as the, the Western Labrador was very rapidly industrialized. I mean, I find that it's, um, I mean, it's, it, it, it happens everywhere. Um, but I think in larger places like, you know, Montreal or Toronto or, you know, the, the land is so expensive. A lot of, oftentimes it just gets resold and redeveloped. Whereas, um, you know, here kind of in, and then I see it also in Norway, I see it in Russia, um, you know, right across kind of more Northern parts um, of um, the world where, and kind of more, I guess you might call, some might call it remote parts of the world where we don't have the density of people. We don't have kind of the capital land isn't as expensive. Um, we have this whole, you know, we have a, an accumulation of stuff. You know, we, you know, we're not oftentimes, I mean, and, and I think that's kind of an allegory for the world. I mean, we seem to have an accumulation of, um, we, live, we live in massive accumulations, be it, you know, ocean plastics or greenhouse gases or um, really terrible things. Um, and here, I think in kind of the Northern regions of the world in, in Newfoundland and Labrador included, um, you also, you see that, you see that um, these especially from the 20th century, um, you know, military or industrial operations get built um, and within a few years they get abandoned. And there is, there is, there is nothing else there to kind of, to, to give them new life. I mean, sometimes there is, um, but sometimes it's, you know, uh, but you can often see it. Uh, but then also um, you have this accumulation of, uh, of ruins, of recent ruins that uh, kind of, yeah that, that 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 also kind of remind us you know also um, it's you know kind of thinking about start thinking about history differently you know it's uh, you know like the, the the history you know is not gone um, it doesn't disappear into a vacuum the material is still there we st you know it's, it's it just keeps accumulating and and even you know and and kind of these um, abandoned places places. Um, really remind us of of that and, and and just kind of this this accumulation of 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 mass of stuff and you mentioned your work in Norway and Russia can you touch a little bit more about I guess what you're studying there and and I guess how you're going to tie that into Newfoundland Labrador or what the connection might be I'm looking at similar um, single industrial mining towns uh, in Russia. I've been looking specifically at a place called Manchegorsk in Northwest Russia. It's a copper mining town. And the thing about the Kola Peninsula in Russia where I'm working, it was kind of also kind of a periphery of the Russian empire for a long, long time. I mean, it had kind of early kind of Russian, you know, trips and lots of missionary work with the indigenous Sami. And then they built Murmansk, which is the big port in the area in 1917. Then the re revolution happened. And starting in the 30s, but especially after the war, it was this massive development of railways and hydroelectric dams and mining operations and military bases. Just, I mean, it still is the most militarized uh, area of the Arctic. 
And in 91, there was the breakup of the Soviet Union and a lot of things got abandoned, but a lot of them took on new life and a lot of them are still either mining towns or military towns. And, and a lot of the indigenous population got resettled. That sounds very familiar to Labrador. Um, so even though, you know, I mean, yeah, it looks very different, but um, at least the buildings do. It's still, it's a boreal forest environment. And a lot of the kind of the legacies are very similar. So a lot of that work, you know, specifically have been looking at, um, yeah, I mean, both kind of the historical developments, but also um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff that's kind of around the towns. Since I can't really, I mean, these are still mining active industrial operations. I can't just walk in there. Uh, but I'm kind of more looking at, yeah, kind of these abandoned places that fall by the wayside um, as part of the industrialization or deindustrialization de or restructuring. And in Norway as well, I'm, I'm looking at this uh, kind of place called, uh, called Kirkenes, uh, or the Bjornevatn is the mining town. Kirkenes was the port. And it's an iron mining town, and it was shut down in 97 and then had a brief reopening in the early 2000s and got shut down again. Um, and now it got bought up by Takora Resources, which are the same company that restarted Babush Mines. So um, there's some really interesting connections there. And there as well, I mean, this was also kind of an ideal kind of a social democratic welfare state community with a very strong union and a very nice welfare system, very nice houses. It was also very, a lot of them were also quasi-militaristic endeavors. Uh, this is very visible in Hirkanas where it's right on the border with Russia. Um, and it's also kind of in the Sami Finnish borderlands. Um, so like, uh, you know, people couldn't get a job there if they didn't speak Norwegian, specifically targeting the Sami and the Finnish people. Uh, but the funny thing is there were not enough trained mining engineers in Norway, so they had to get them to, you know, from Germany. <laughs> so, but, that, but that sort of non-Norwegian was okay. <laughs> so um, there are these kind of uh, militaristic or quasi-nationalist um, aspects to, to all of this. And as well as kind of built uh, the built environment that I find often very similar. And, and then I find that especially being in, because, you know, in, in, uh, in, in Norway, I did have basically almost unlimited access to an abandoned mine, a massive abandoned open pit mine. And, you know, the, the other thing that kind of, that's kind of got me thinking is about you know, land transformations and how do people relate to just having a massive pile of rock suddenly appear over their horizon or, you know, dealing with the noise and the dust, which is something that people in Labrador West can very much relate to. And, and then, you know, since, you know, these, you know, we, again, don't live in um, kind of, you know, the, these communities are have proven to be very unstable. They're, like I mentioned, they're riding the resource roller coaster. So it's been very interesting for me to see, to be in, uh, in Norway, to be in Kirkenes uh, with an abandoned mine, which is still people are hoping to be mined. So there's kind of this, this, this waiting, this perpetual you know, hoping that this mothballed project will get off the ground while it itself is is abandoned. Um, so and, and there I see very strong connections to Twin Falls, which I think you know was mothballed uh, for you know fifty years ago, and now it's you know the, the mothballing has gotten to such a point that 
you could say it's abandoned. Um, so these are kind of very interesting questions of just, yeah, why, why do things become abandoned and what happened kind of in that process? You know, your discussion around abandoned mines and I guess kind of what happens to them afterwards. I was wondering if you've visited Bell Island, if you've had the chance to visit there and do the mine tour. and Because yeah. I think they've done something really interesting with their industrial heritage and because uh, they present it in such an interesting way. I, I'm a big fan of the, the mine tour, especially going down underneath. I think they do a great job with that. I've been to Bell Island um, many times and I've been to the, on that tour twice. So uh, yeah, it's a great tour. I, I, do, I, do, I do really love it. Um, but I think what I like more, not because the, you know, I think the tour is fantastic, but what I like more about Bell Island is just walking around and seeing kind of the landscape itself. Uh, because I think the the and just seeing how much the geography and and, and the structures and you know is defined by uh, this mining heritage where you know you have houses built on the waste truck, um, you know you have uh, current streets following old uh, streets where you know they would carved or next to the harbor there is still you know abandoned equipment around. So I think, you know, yeah, kind of just spending um, a day or more just just experiencing and just looking at how, you know, beyond just the kind of, yeah, the the very lovely mind tour, which everyone should go to, but also um, just seeing how um, the history, the past, of the mining past of, of Bell Island still has has a huge impact um, on the island today often being right beneath their feet yeah this is great this has been fascinating yeah i think it's been a really uh lovely time talking to you and it's it's been really fun you've been listening to the living heritage podcast a co-production of heritage nl and chmr radio at memorial university you can find previous episodes on itunes or wherever you download podcasts we're on twitter at hfnlca Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail, and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.